Welcome to Council Culture, the business of law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Council Culture, the Business of Law podcast. Uh, this week, uh, I've got Thomas Kendra, uh, arbitration partner at Hogan Novels based in Paris. Uh, hello, Thomas. How are you doing? Hi, I'm very good, thanks. Nice to nice to speak to you, Megan. Yeah, it's lovely. We actually met um, last week at the ABA. Um, the firm kindly invited me to a breakfast, and so uh, that's how we met. But um, yeah, I mean, um, just to start off, so you're based in Paris, but you're British, uh, and you oversee kind of the African operations of the arbitration practice, is that correct? Yes, that's right. So, um, yes, I'm British originally, um, was trained in the UK. I'm not putting on this silly accent, but uh, <laughs> I have been in France since 2006. So it's true that, I mean, I may have picked up some Francophone rhythms and things. In fact, I sometimes meet some of my English colleagues and they tell me that my English is very good, uh, which is a bit scary because <laughs> it should kind of be perfect. Um but yeah, so I'm a, I'm an English lawyer and a French lawyer, um, and I've now got both nationalities. And uh, I think, well, working in France as a native English speaker on international arbitration has always, I think, been good for my career because, of course, there are international arbitrations in French and French, and occasionally I do plead in French and, and cross-examine in French. But most hearings, most cases, take place in English, so. Or while the client might be French speaking, or the documents might be in French, the the, the hearings and the cross examination, the pleading takes place in English. And so, yeah, I think I think that's actually you know it's 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 been very positive for my career and and helped me grow quite quickly in terms of development. And then moving on to the the Africa side, um, I helped set up an international arbitration centre in Kigali in Rwanda in mm. two thousand twelve which is called right. the Kigali International Arbitration Center. I'm still on the board there. And from that, I've developed practices in Africa. And now I'm the uh, yeah the head of the Paris desk in, in the Paris office. And we obviously do a lot of work in Africa from Paris, mostly in Francophone Africa. And we also work with the London office in Anglophone Africa. And so, yeah, we cover, we cover a lot from here. Yeah, definitely. That's That sounds like a lot. And I mean, any are there any kind of trends that you're seeing um, I mean, I don't know if you do much work in the UK, but at least in in France and in Africa, in terms of litigation and arbitration, they're quite new, uh, or that you think might start kind of picking up in the coming years. Yeah, there's there's a lot. There are a lot of things. So, for those who don't know so much about arbitration, but arbitration is really divided into commercial arbitration and investment arbitration. Right. Commercial arbitration is between companies, and they agree to go to arbitration to solve their dispute. They can agree that in the contract at the outset. And so that's when you're you're doing business internationally. And for various reasons, it can be confidentialities, particularly, or enforcement. Uh, you know, if you're a Japanese company contracting with a French company, the Japanese company doesn't want to go to the French courts. The French company doesn't want to go to the Japanese courts. So they agree to go to international arbitration. So that's commercial. Right. And then you have investment arbitration, which is based on treaties. And it's where states agree to give investors certain rights in order mm. to encourage them to invest. And then those investors, if they feel that there's been a law change which has discriminated against them or treated them unfairly or expropriated them without proper compensation, they can then bring in an arbitration against the state. And so we act. So I do both. I do commercial arbitration and I do investment arbitration. And 
I happen to act for, so therefore for a lot of companies, but also for states. At the moment, we're acting for Albania uh, and Colombia in this office. And those are more in the public domain, investment mm. arbitrations, because there's a certain transparency obligation when you're uh, working with states because it's public money, whereas commercial arbitration is confidential. So I wouldn't tell you who, who I was working for on those. But, yeah. um, but I can talk about trends. So um, in the Paris, and, and I think the English market is, is kind of similar. Um, we have still a lot of business, a lot of post-M&A disputes. Right. Um, now, there was a huge explosion of disputes actually sort of during COVID and just after COVID. Um, and I think that was kind of people fighting for, you know, a lot of nerv- nervousness in the market. Mm-hmm. And therefore, people starting disputes as soon as something was going wrong. They were launching disputes and going, you know, going straight into into a fight because, you know, they were nervous about what was going to happen. Nobody knew the future. People thought there's going to be lots of bankruptcies, et cetera. So there was a lot of arbitration started. And that, it was actually a relatively boom time for international arbitration. Um, since then, the figures have gone back slightly more realistic, perhaps. Um, people have maybe just calmed down a little bit. Uh, and now, you know, you're more likely to see discussions beforehand, a bit more negotiation. So maybe a bit of mediation, you know, mediation's been been gradually gaining ground. Yeah. Um, I'd say more so in the UK than in than in France. Yeah. Um, but it's gradually gaining gaining ground. So before people go to arbitration, because arbitration is a full on fight. Yeah. Um, and and usually when it comes to us, because we're arbitration lawyers, people are have already exhausted all the negotiation possibilities and they they just want to you know punch each other basically so we are we are their conduit for for punching each other um and and often it it settles later you know you you set out your case you set out your evidence and then the other side sees it and maybe they get to be more reasonable uh, or vice versa um so so i would say things have things have calmed down a little bit maybe a little bit more mediation uh, still high figures we're still you know very high um international trade is 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 still very high yeah the many issues arising in globalization at the moment so you know everything that's been affected by the dispute in ukraine um supply chain issues uh any problems like that which have led to a tension increase of interest rates inflation all things that lead to a tension of markets tend to lead to disputes so i've seen we're working on disputes related to supply chains. It's been very difficult to get hold of all kinds of things, but but one particular dispute, metals. You need a huge mm. amount of metal. Uh, it's actually very difficult, been very difficult to get hold of because of the dispute in the Ukraine, and, and there's a massive tension on those supply chains, and that applies to all kinds of industries. And when you have those tensions, of course, there are deadlines in contracts, and people can't respect the deadlines, uh, and you end up you end up in disputes. So. A lot of disputes caused by the geopolitical situation, and that's that's kind of one trend I would say, and it's linked. So it can be post M and A, but it can also be supply distribution. And then I would raise a second trend, which is more focusing on Africa, mm. which is that African states are gradually, and here we're a bit more in the investment arbitration, but it can have a knock on on commercial arbitration as well. African states are looking at protecting their interests a bit more. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's there's a a big push for them to prefer their own trade, so their own business community. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, many states in Africa are currently imposing requirements for things like mining licenses or uh, 
petroleum exploitation licenses to be held at least in a certain amount by local shareholders. And that right. obviously the, the the international shareholders who owned it up to now are not necessarily ecstatic at the idea of passing over uh, <laughs> bet, yeah. to, to, to local companies. Uh, but it can even go much further than that. It can be they can they have an obligation to take local employees. They can have an obligation to transfer technology to local companies. Um, and, and this can it can be knock on. It, it, it can be the original investor. So a major mm. international company that ha- holds the license. But it can even be a knock on effect down the down the chain, because if they have to use local companies, then international companies who would otherwise have been providing services can feel that they've been discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this this can lead to quite a lot of disputes. So so on that side, while we've got this globalization idea on, on one hand, which is which has been had a lot of tensions applied to it due to various geopolitical situations. On the other side, across Africa, we've got governments maybe protecting themselves, maybe being more interested in intra-African trade. And maybe we'll come on to it. But the the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which I don't know if you, you've been following it, but this is a major development, a treaty signed by all the states in Africa, except one, Eritrea, but, but literally all the other states in Africa have signed this, and it creates the biggest free trade zone in the world. And mm-hmm. that the idea behind that is to increase, again, increase intra-African trade, so trade amongst African countries, because at the moment it's very low, it's kind of 18%, whereas in Europe it's uh, trade amongst yeah. the continent is, is like 70%. So it's a huge gap. And so African states are focusing a bit more internally, uh, and that means they can alienate international investors and therefore you know, lead to further disputes. Actually, I've got a couple of questions on that, and one oh, of them might sorry, be... Sorry, that, that was a lot there that I that's downloaded on you, so... Um, yeah, no, 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 my, that's, that's fine. That's it's my, actually that's really interesting. Career. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's super interesting because we don't really hear much what's happening in Africa, so it's really interesting to me. I mean, one question here is, um, do, you, do you feel that between the African countries, they're looking to do something similar to the European Union in terms of trade in the long run, and it's just the early phase of it. And secondly, that's a different question, but how is uh, Asian, especially Chinese investment in Africa kind of, well, affecting markets there and and potential disputes? Yeah, good questions. So, on the first question, are they looking to sort of reproduce Europe? I mean, that's not the, those are one the, on, the, on the words they tend to use. But yes, the African it's the African Union here that's the driving force behind these the, the treaty. Yeah. And the treaty yeah. covers, so I said free trade, but it actually covers all kinds of areas. It covers competition, mm-hmm. a special competition protocol. It covers uh, intellectual property, and it covers something in which I'm particularly interested. In. It covers investor state disputes, invest, the right, investment yeah. protocol. So, yes, in a way, it's it's creating an infrastructure that's much more, it's, it's binding. So that's similar to Europe yeah. in that way. It yeah. binds the states. These protocols bind the states, which is not something that's necessarily been done before. It's been done on a regional level in Africa. There have yeah. been lots of regional initiatives, and there's, there's various ECOWAS in West Africa. There's the OHADA region, which is the Francophone, has it a unified business law. Yeah. Uh, which we work a lot uh, in relation to. But yeah, there's never been anything quite so ambitious as this and quite mm. so, which has had the buy-in of all these countries. I mean, I find that fascinating. All the countries, you know, it's not like Europe, we were discussing for for years who who was in, who was out, and so, very yeah. for my for my own country. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is still an issue and has ended up with Brexit and, and everything. And, and in Africa, you've seen a political will, which I just found extraordinary, the fact that they've all, 
you know, bought into this project even before the project has really been fully developed and set out. Yeah. So, yeah. so yes, they're, they're looking at doing something very ambitious like Europe. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, there's a sort of the proof will be in the pudding or we'll see. I mean, we, yeah. we will see. There's, there are infrastructure challenges in Africa, of course. There's still a lot of poverty, a lot of uh, wealth disparities. You... It's all it's 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 all very good having a wonderful treaty which says that when you cross borders with your lorry full of cars or whatever it is, you're supposed to go through the border for free and nobody's supposed to um like charge you. But 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 maybe the local police have a different way of working and maybe the local police, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe they've been taking backhanders for many years and maybe it's not it's you know, we're talking about a huge continent. So but but yes, on the on the face of it. The, the, we're at the cusp of something extremely exciting for Africa, mm. I think, and I think everybody should. Well, I think everybody should should to get on board and and think about it and and support it because well, I'm a big supporter of Europe and I'm a big supporter of the of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Your second question was about Asian investors, so Chinese yeah. and and others. Yes, of course, the Chinese investment in Africa is is massive, not just in Africa. I mean, we have I have a dispute in Albania. And it, it, it relates to a Chinese investor buying one of the biggest assets in Albania, like a huge petroleum asset. Yeah. Uh, they are, you know, the, the Belt and Braces approach across the Silk Road. Uh, and yes, in Africa, there's a huge amount of investment. Now, we've had it. So I mentioned I'm the, the, a member of the board of the Kigali Arbitration Center. So now our arbitration center is only really set up to do sort of regional disputes. I mean, we're not trying to rivalize the huge arbitration centers like the ICC based in Paris. Yeah. But, but, but you know it's cheaper and a bit more a bit, a, a bit more a bit quicker and, and nimble but anyway we've had it so most of the disputes involve a rwandan party we've actually mm. had disputes between two chinese companies suing each other at the kigali international arbitration center which i think we mm. would never have thought possible but it just gives you an example of how many chinese investors there are that in the end they're resolving their disputes in this African sort of regional center. So, mm. yes, I mean, there's, there's now China's going through its own problems. So maybe it'll reduce in proportion. But but certainly over the last few years, they've 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 basically replaced much of the investment which was coming from Europe. I mean, until yeah. not many years ago, the biggest investors in, in Africa were, the, were France, number one. Yeah. The UK and Netherlands were, were the biggest investors in Africa. And, I, and that's now changed and it's now more China. That's really interesting. Thank you. About Africa, obviously, uh, I'm sure you will have seen a couple of weeks ago, uh, a major decision uh, was handed down in London uh, in uh, the case with Nigeria. So basically, Nigeria um, was victorious um, and won a bid to overturn a, an $11 billion <laughs> a damages bill for a collapsed gas project uh, in the high court. Um, and, and that was, I mean, it made the headlines everywhere here. Uh, and it was really, really huge. It's a dispute that's been going on for a while. Um, do you have any thoughts to share on that? And kind of, you know, how, how is that going to as you said earlier in the conversation, you said that African states seem to want to protect their own assets a bit more. And I think that's part of the story here. Um, do you think we're going to see more of that in the London courts or even European courts? Um, well, the issue here was obviously a big issue of, of corruption. So we're talking about investment arbitration uh, or, or was it investment arbitration or maybe it was under a, a procurement contract. But in any case, it was it was an, it was an invested directly against the state. So they took yeah. Nigeria. They, they took Nigeria to arbitration, and 
behind so the, the, I understand from the decision there's no allegation of corruption against the arbitrators themselves mm-hmm. uh, but there's various allegations of corruption uh, against uh, in, on the basis of the English uh, court judgment against various of the actors involved in the case uh, including witnesses including uh, people forging documents um, and all kinds of things to build up a story uh, of that was against the Nigeria itself, against the Nigerian state, um, and ended up with this eleven billion dollar decision. Now, I think what it's true that it's enormous. So there's a couple of things I would say about it. Firstly, at least, as you say, it was all over the press. Everybody's talking about it. Well, at least that's vaguely reassuring because if this happened every week, uh, you know, we just stop talking about it. So um, at least it's an exception. Um, it's it's quite depressing to think that that could happen, but at yeah. least it's an exception. It's also relatively gratifying that Nigeria was in a position to pursue this to the end, and actually, you know, the truth came out. So, you know, thank goodness. Um, another point is that uh, perhaps I think a, a learning aspect for arbitrators is to really look at the quantum of cases. I mean, we've been arbitrators, arbitration specialists have been saying this for quite a long time. And there are a lot of quantum specialists working in the arbitration field, but arbitrators really, you know, this is maybe a wake up call for some of those, you know, without naming any names, some people who, some of the arbitrators who focus a bit more on the liability and then they're, they're willing to just, you know, just put a number at the bottom of the award because they, they're more interested in the legal liability. But it's really important how they calculate damages. And I think it's 11 billion, just it, apparently it wasn't properly contested during the case, during the arbitration case. Uh, Nigeria did a ter- terrible job of defending it, potentially lim- linked to corruption. Again, I, I don't make any sort of allegations myself, but but clearly a, a round, big round figure of 11 billion wasn't appropriate here. So you, you, it really needs arbitrators to dig down into the into the specific amounts. So I mean, it's a bit depressing because it doesn't reflect well, wonderfully on on certain international arbitrations. And I've been in cases where you know corruption could have been alleged, but it. At the same time, you know, it's it's weighing a balance. It's very difficult to prove corruption. So, and you mm. don't want arbitrators finding there's corruption as soon as it's alleged. You know, it's it's a difficult yeah. it's a difficult balance to strike. Um, we've had some arbitrators moaning that the corruption is always alleged in cases, and then we've got other others saying that arbitrators don't do enough to to locate corruption. Um, so, a, a, a difficult a difficult case, a difficult story. But um, but again, at least it seems like an exception, and maybe we can learn a few a few things from it. For sure, <laughs> I think there's definitely a lot of learnings from this. For sure, I mean the the, yeah. the judgment was like 140 pages long. I mean, it's just a beast. Uh, so he's done, uh, ama- he's done an amazing job, the judge. Uh, it's really impressive. But I, I, and they also, I mean, I was before the English court quite recently uh, for a set aside application, and the judge spent most of the day of the hearing basically selling the English court. And denigrating international arbitration, so there's there's a clear sort of rivalry between between the court and international arbitration. So hey, this is definitely a goal scored by the courts against international arbitration. Yeah, uh, definitely. And so now moving on to. Um... Uh, another topic that I had in mind earlier. Um, so the um, International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes uh, and the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law uh, came up with a code of conduct. I wondered if you could kind of give us a bit of an overview of that and kind of what really arbitrators should be expecting uh, from that at all. Sure. So it's it, it, so ICSID and non are the two main 
organizations that organize investment disputes, so investor state disputes. Um, ICSID is run by the World Bank, is is, is a, an, a, a, sorry, a, a group within the World Bank. And Ansatra is the UN, uh, UN uh, organization for pro-interest arbitration. Um, so, so basically, when they've published a code of conduct, that will cover almost all arbitrations involving states. I mean, there are some there are state cases at other institutions, but I think you can expect these to be integrated or referred to in in a soft law kind of way uh, in in any kind of arbitrations, and certainly those involving states. Um, so here they put a, it's a code of conduct. Um, it's not revolutionary. Nothing here is revolutionary. I think it's more a, a kind of uh, um, a bit like a codification again in a in a soft law manner, but a codification of things that were already uh, starting to become general practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but but here you have finally some clear guidelines, and we've seen in the past some. Uh, other guidelines put forward by the IBA on occasions. So the IBA has uh, has has released uh, guidelines regarding conflict of interests uh, mm. regarding arbitrators, and that's become the referred to document. It's extremely good. It's well drafted. It's short and and to the point. Uh, also for the disclosure of evidence, there's another one. Um, and and they basically refer to in all arbitrations when people have an issue they look at those guidelines and i think that's what we'll be talking we'll be looking at here it, it, it will be the same kind of soft law so what what kind of things it does well it prevents arbitrators from acting concurrently as counsel or expert witness in other proceedings that involve the same law regulation or conduct of a state at issue in a given dispute so you can't you can't be an arbitrator in one dispute and a counsel arguing in another dispute when they cover the same kind of measures right it, to an extent, that should seem obvious, um, but it's not necessarily. And here, when you have it written, it's going to be much easier to exclude an arbitrator if they if they're contravening those kind of those kind of um, issues. And it's the same for that. You know, that lasts for three years afterwards. Um, you have other obligations, such as obligations of confidentiality. Yeah. Arbitrators cannot disclose or use information concerning an investor state dispute in which they've acted. Uh, unless the applicable rules of the parties provide for this. Again, nothing revolutionary. You'd think that should be common sense. That should be general good conduct from an arbitrator. But at least now you have it in writing, you have it in a document, which you can then, you know, hold up and wave and say, hang on, what on earth is going on here? But then what happens if if you breach any of these? Like, what what was the penalty? That's a very good question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You... So it's again, it's soft law. So I would say you can challenge. You can always challenge arbitrators. Mm. Uh, you can apply to the institution and say the arbitrator, if if you find out, for instance, that there's been a failure to disclose a conflict of interest during the, the course of a case, then you can apply to the institution that's running the case. So ICSID, uh, you can say we believe that uh, this the, the arbitrator has not been respecting the the code of conduct, and you right. can ask, you apply to disqualify that arbitrator. In that case, ICSID, the ICSID procedure is that they allow the other two arbitrators to make a decision as to the exclusion of the of the arbitrator that you're applying to to exclude. Okay. Um, and then if if you still don't feel you know you've had your proper hearing, you can or, or you find out later that there's been a breach of the code of conduct, then you can apply to set aside the award at a later date. And mm. uh, again, there are different procedures in ICSID and answer trial. It will depend on the country where you're seated. Uh, okay. But you can, you know, if you find a breach of this later, you can apply for the award to be set aside, to be cancelled. So 
it's not that the arbitrators will go to prison. And in fact, you know, we 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 generally accept and agree that unless it's really extremely fraudulent conduct, arbitrators should have a certain immunity because we don't want we don't want um, parties suing arbitrators all the time for just doing their job. I mean, they have to be able to yeah, make decisions yeah, yeah. just like judges. But what it does is it gives you recourse against the award. Uh, potentially recourse against the arbitrator during the course of the case or recourse mm. against the award if it's after the end of the case. So it is, again, it, it is quite important. And the fact that you've got some nice, clear wording, um, I think I think that's a, that's a very good step forward. I think it will become a very useful document. It's interesting. So I guess, say, for example, you're a client and you're not happy with what your arbitrator's done. So there's not going to be any, even if you complain to say Exid, there's not going to be any regulatory things coming out of that. Even if they find that something went wrong, they won't be referring that person to whatever regulatory body is in charge in, in, in the jurisdiction that's concerned, right? No. Well, there's nothing here that would constitute criminal activity or anything like that. So, okay. um, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, exit decisions are, tend to be published. Um, unless there's a specific reason for them not to be. So if uh, if the two arbitrators decided that the third arbitrator, you know, there were uh, serious concerns or there were reasons to exclude them, um, then that would become public. And if, if there was really something serious, uh, some ethical issue uh, as a result, like they'd be knowingly withholding information that they should have disclosed or something like that, I mean, potentially there could there could be proceedings before their bar, you know, because we, right, okay. when we become when we become lawyers, we make ethical promises to to respect, you know, certain criteria. But um, I, I think that no, that's not really the emphasis. The emphasis will be on the uh, on the awards themselves, the decisions see, themselves, okay. and, and the procedure itself. And that that has nothing to do either with say the client deciding to sue for you know malpractice or something like that. Like that that's a separate thing completely. Yes, although. Uh, this will be a night. I mean, if, if if things have got to that that level, then this code of conduct will be something that y- you can put forward as a yeah. You know, they say this is the kind of conduct you should be upheld to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you breach it, then that's one step along the way to 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 malpractice. That's fascinating. There's no, it, but it's it's you'd have to go a lot further to to really. Uh, bring an arbitrator's sort of liability into into question. Here, it's more just that the, they shouldn't. This is rough, this is how they should behave, and if they're not, yeah, then maybe maybe this case isn't. You know, they shouldn't be on the case. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, on that note, um, no, thank you so much for 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 this. That was uh, it was really good to talk to you and to learn a bit more about. Well, first of all, what's happening in Africa? Because I think that's the kind of market that people will want to look to uh especially with the latest decision recently um so uh no thank you so much thomas i really appreciate it um and uh, to the listeners we're on spotify google podcasts and apple podcast and we'll be back next week for another episode great, great. thanks thanks megan it was great speaking to you you've been listening to council culture the business of law podcast brought to you by byfield Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again next week where we'll be discussing some more of the biggest stories in the legal sector.